the title of the sermon. Right, it says, uh, what should you expect? Now, this sort of uh, phrase is more commonly used of um, books for maybe young parents who have had their first child. You know, what should you expect of your child you know, in his first year? Oh, it's the sort of thing that you might say to a couple that's getting married. What should you expect in your first year of marriage? So, you know, Zen Yang was telling me at the stack party he went to, one of the advice given to him was, you know, it's all going to be downhill from here. You know, what should you expect? You should expect that. Um, okay, but, but that's not what we're talking about, you know, parenting uh, or marriage. Rather, we are asking, what should you expect from the people who do Christian ministry amongst you? Okay, and I'm not just talking about, you know, Andrew and myself, not just talking about the elders, uh, the deacons, Nick, you know, we're talking about all of us here who in one way or another is involved in Christian ministry. Like so the Sunday school teachers, the, the youth leaders, the music ministry people, uh, mosaic leaders, Batam mission regulars, you know, your Bible study leaders, I mean, all of us in one way or another, we are involved in Christian ministry. So what should you expect? of the people who are doing Christian ministry? What should you expect of yourself if you are involved in Christian ministry? So this is, the, this is the expectation, this is the gold standard that Paul lays out in this passage that Carrie's read for us. It is the gold standard that we must all prayerfully strive towards and be praying that God would enable uh, to be a reality in our midst. Now, some of you might think that, ah, okay... The sermon, the talk is about uh, a very myopic, very parochial, church-related topic. You know, what does it have to do with my real life in the real world out there? Right, we come to church and we're just talking about church things. Well, if the gospel is what it is, if, if what this message that has come from God is the the only message that can save sinners who have rebelled against God, if, if the gospel is the message that is at the, the center of God's purposes of recreating a new humanity that will be holy and righteous before Him and will live with Him for all eternity, if the gospel is the thing that achieves this, then what Paul is talking about, this, this ministry of this gospel, there's nothing more important than that. Right? If the gospel is this message that achieves that, that is at the center of God's purposes, then the ministry that proclaims and advances the gospel is, is important, is high, must be high in our priority. There is no greater news and so there is no greater work. Let me put it another way. Every other human endeavor that you see around you will one day come to an end. Right? Every human kingdom that's built, every business venture, every project, it will all come to an end. The only human endeavor that will last and have fruit into eternity is the human endeavor that is involved in the ministry of this gospel going out, this gospel advancing. And so here, Paul in this passage tells us what authentic, gospel ministry looks like. 
uh, we need to ask God to help us uh, hear and see clearly what he's saying to us. So let's, let's ask him to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to gather uh, in this way without fear. We thank you that in so many parts of the world where our fellow believers do gather in the fear of persecution, Father, that very presence of people gathered show the reality of the work that you are doing in this world. Just as, as we look around us, the people that you have brought here, the people who believe what you have done in the Lord Jesus is evidence of you working in our midst. So Father, because we are confident you are at work, we come to you now and pray that you will help us see and be challenged and be convinced of what you have to say to us in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see in your outline that uh, I've broken passage into three points. You know, I've tried to use the same letter to begin each word, motivation, manner, model. But I want to say that it's just a guide um, because Paul is speaking with so much emotion here. It's hard to um, put his thoughts into clear sections. Okay, so I've done my best and I've uh, put the first sec- section as motivation. That Paul's motivation in true gospel ministry is to please God. Now we need to realize that Paul did not set out. Right, He didn't wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm going to write a letter to the Thessalonians and I'm going to tell them, okay, I'm going to give them a manual on what true gospel ministry looks like. Okay, I mean, you look at verses 1 and 2. Right? He says to them, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Now, what Paul is doing is he's... Um, recollecting what happened when he and his team first went into Thessalonica, which was the account recorded for us in Acts 17, okay, which uh, is crucial to understanding the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We need to know what happened when Paul first arrived in Thessalonica. And as we uh, saw in our responsive reading, Paul arrived there and his custom was to go to the synagogue. Right? Over three Sabbath days, he proved from the scriptures and the result was, right, you see there, some Jews. So some Jews who were in the synagogue, they believed Paul. And then Luke goes on to say, a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So these are not Jews, these are Gentiles, but these are God-fearers. They, were, they worship in the synagogue as well. They believed a Jewish God, but they were not Jews. But this large number of Gentiles heard Paul and believed him. And so, what was once a synagogue full of prominent Jews and you know, uh, prominent Greek fearers and prominent women, after Paul came through and preached, well, some Jews left and then a large number of the Gentiles who were once here in the synagogue, they also left. And then a, a prominent women. Why, why are these women prominent? They are prominent because they are most likely rich dames. Lah. Okay? They are wealthy women. And, and these wealthy women who once sponsored our synagogue camp, who once sponsored the ACM, no, annual synagogue meeting, ASM, 
the buffet, they also left and they follow Paul now. Okay, and so you see this resulted in a lot of opposition while Paul was there. And we didn't read verse 10, but verse 10 tells us in Acts 17 that as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Because there was this big uproar in the city when it was night time in the, in the stealth of the night, they sent Paul and Silas away. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians, when he's writing to them, he's dealing with what those jealous Jews still in Thessalonica, that they must be slandering him and his ministry. They must be saying to these Jews and Gentiles who had converted, who had left the synagogue, they must be saying, hey, why are you believing that con man? No, he's just a religious charlatan who has come true, came for a few weeks and then disappeared in the middle of the night. Now, why, why are you believing him? I mean, he was just here for the money. He was just here for your praises. He was just here for his reputation. He had impure motives. You know, on and on, they were slandering him. And so Paul knew this because uh, in chapter 3, we'll know that he sent Timothy uh, to the Thessalonican church. And Timothy had come back to Paul and must have reported to Paul what these jealous Jews would have been saying of him and his ministry. And so Paul, in chapter 2, he is mounting a defense. He's not just writing, you know, um, a manual on what Christian ministry. No, he is defending his ministry. And the reason why he's defending his ministry is not because his ego is hurt. It's not because he feels, yeah, these people have tarnished my reputation. No, no, no. It is because he knows that if his ministry is cast into doubt, then his message is cast into doubt. And then the health of the church potentially can be you know, uh, made unsound. And so he's not so concerned you know, primarily about his own ego and reputation, but he's concerned about the truth of the message and the health of the church. Because if he's not a qualified messenger, then the message is cast into doubt. It's just like, if it wasn't a qualified sushi maker that made your sushi, okay, it's fine. If the fish is fresh, I'll still eat it. But if you ever find out that it was not a qualified parachute maker that made your parachute, I doubt you would jump out of that plane. And so Paul is concerned that the Thessalonian Christians, they are... They don't, they don't give in to what these jealous Jews are saying of him. So in this passage, he's defending himself, defending his ministry so that the message and the health of the church can be defended. And so he says in verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. No, it's a true message. And we didn't come with impure motives, now, the, the word for impure motives have to do with, uh, you know, in the sexual arena. And uh, so the, the jealous Jews might have been saying, you see, you see all these prominent women who once sponsored our church camp, you know, our, our synagogue camp, now they've left with Paul. You know, Paul must have used some, you know, impure uh, motives to get them to follow him. But Paul says, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't with impure motives. We weren't trying to trick you. See, on the contrary, verse 4, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted 
with the gospel. Okay, this is a this is a dense sentence. Okay, he says we are approved by God, and we've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, what does it mean when Paul says he has been approved by God? Well, the thing that helps me is to turn to two Timothy. So just you know, a few pages on from one Thessalonians, you will find Paul's letter to Timothy, his second uh, letter that we have in the Bible, to his prodigy. Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, the older man saying to the younger man, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Okay, same root word, as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So what it means to be approved And Paul's mind is to be approved because he correctly handles this book. He's not teaching uh, it uh, erroneously. He's not teaching it with the uh, motivation to to trick people, uh, make it sound easier, uh, promise things that's not in this book. But he is approved because he handles this book faithfully. So because... He handles this book faithfully. Therefore, he is entrusted with the message of the gospel. Because he handles this book faithfully, he is now a steward entrusted with the main message of this book, which is the message of God, the message of the gospel. So that's why he says we are approved. We've been entrusted. I mean, because... He knows this. That's why he goes on to say in verse 5, sorry, end of verse 4, we are not trying to please God, please people, but God who tests our hearts. So because he knows he's approved, because he knows he's a steward of this gospel, he says his main motivation is to please God. I mean, it is so clear, right? So obvious that our main motivation is must be to please God. But we so often get it just the opposite. Right? So often the way we are motivated is that we are not trying to please God, but people who don't know our hearts. Hmm? Paul says, we are not trying to please people, but God who knows our hearts. But so often we are trying to not so much please God, but please people. People who don't know our heart. So it's easy to please them. Right? You just say the right thing, do the right thing. They, they don't know your heart, but it's easy to try and trick them to try and please them. Right? See, in one sense, it's, it's understandable why we would do this. Because the, the, the people, the person is right in front of you. You know, the facial expression change. They, you know if they don't like what you are saying, they could actually do something against you. It's so easy to fall into that trap of trying to please people rather than God. Because the person, these people that are in front of you, you know they can have some influence, they can have some effect on you, there can be something they do to you or say about you. And so, so often we don't want to say the things that people find hard to hear or find offensive. So it's so understandable. But on the other hand, if you really think about it, 
if we really believe what this book says about God, about who this being is, who created us and who created all that we see around us, this being who is so holy and magnificent and powerful, then if we believe what this book says about this God, then how can we care about what some human creatures think versus what this creator, this mighty God thinks? If we care about what he thinks, if we believe what the Bible says about him and therefore we care about what he thinks, then it will lead to us not caring so much about what people think. So Paul says we are not man-pleasers, we are God-pleasers, because God is God. There's no one like God. And so he goes on to say in verse 5, You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So you see, when you hear the word flattery here, you... Uh, might think that, okay, it's just someone using nice words, um, you know, saying nice things about you. But the, the original word had the idea of not just saying nice words, but saying nice words in order to get you to do something for me. Okay, that's the, the, the meaning of the word flattery that Paul is using. So it's, it's using nice words on you so that I can get you to do what I want. So Paul says, we didn't do that. Okay, because he says, verse 6, you know, even though as apostles, we could have asserted our authority. We didn't use flattery to get you to do what I wanted you to do. And we didn't just come here and throw our weight around and just use our authority to get you to do what I want you to do. Uh, but in verse 7, beginning of verse 7, he says, Instead, we were like young children among you. And I think the idea there is, just as a young kid, we'll not go to the mother and say, Hey, mom! Wow, did you get your hair permed today? Whoa, you, you look 10 years younger. Now, can I have a lollipop? Now, the kid doesn't do that. Okay, so I think that's the idea that Paul has when he uses this metaphor. He's, he's just coming, speaking openly, speaking plainly, like a young child. He didn't use flattery. He didn't just throw his weight around. But I think the main point in this first section is Paul defending his ministry, saying, no, no, I didn't do it out of, for, for monetary reasons. I didn't do it to trick you. I'm doing this to please God. And then he moves on to the next section. And just as he used the metaphor of a young, cho- young child, he moves on to another family metaphor, a nursing mother. And so he says his manner his conduct to them, his, his behavior to them was like a nursing mother. Right? He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So he says, you know, we, we didn't just come sharing a message, but we came and we gave of ourselves, we gave of our lives And one way that he gave of his life, verse 9, is surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now, the practice in those days was that if I am a 
a teacher, I'm teaching you something, and you're here learning from me, you have the responsibility to pay for my uh, food and accommodation. But Paul, when he came through Thessalonica, he did not want to accept anything from them. Okay? That's why he says, I didn't want to be a burden on you, and so in my spare time, I mean, how much spare time did the apostle have? I don't know, but he was, he was stitching tents, making tents, selling tents. I mean, literally it was tents, okay? Uh, so that he could provide for his own food, own accommodation. And so this was an example of how he was so self-giving, like a nursing mother. But the principle that Paul operated out from was that I came not just sharing this message, but I came giving you of myself. I came sharing our very lives with you. Now, whenever I you know, read this part of the Bible with uh, people, and then, you know, like this whole passage, there's so many things that Paul says about Christian ministry, and just ask people to ask them, which is the aspect that strikes you most? Nine out of ten times, you know, my students will tell me, verse 8, that, 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 Paul did not just share with them a message. It wasn't just, I stand here, you sit there, I speak, you listen, and then bye-bye. No, there was a sharing of lives. There was a giving of himself. And, and that's the, something that always challenges, um, challenges me, challenges the people I read this passage with. And uh, one example I can think of is when we were in Australia, this semi-retired uh, pastor and his wife that we had a great privilege of working with uh, Brian and Judy. Uh, there was this time that um, this Brazilian exchange student who was learning English in Australia uh, came to our church. And when Brian found out that he was looking for a place to stay, you know, he, he told me that he said, he said to his wife, Judy, we have to let him stay with us. I mean, I, I, I can't just, you know, know that this person has no, no place to stay and know that I have an extra room in my house and, and not offer that to him. And so what, turned, what, what started out as you know, one week, a few days, turned into months of uh, Fernando from Brazil staying with Brian and Judy. And it was such a blessing to all that were involved. Fernando learned so much because he was there in Brian and Judy's home observing a godly man treating his how to treat his wife. And now Fernando is married and you know, I'm sure a lot of the lessons he learned from Brian, uh, he's able to model out. And, and that's the impact. Brian didn't just stand there and say words about how to be a husband, how to be a, a Christian man, but because he shared life with Fernando. Fernando's life is forever changed. You see, Paul understood he had to share lives and not just a message. Because he understood that his life is no longer his own. So it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not up to him to keep it to himself. He had to give of his life because he knows his life is no longer his own. And uh, I remember this thing that I read in uh, Prodigal God uh, by Tim Keller. Uh, and Tim says that some years ago he met a woman who started coming to his church. And this woman had been from a church that, that didn't teach the Bible properly, that always taught about how God accepts them only if they are sufficiently good and ethical. But she had never truly heard the message of grace, 
of God freely accepting us because of Christ. And then when she began to hear about the true message of the gospel, her response was, this is a scary idea. Scary idea. And so Tim Keller asked her, why do you mean, why do you use this word, scary? And her reply was, she said, if I was saved by my good works, okay, if I came with good works and God looked at my good works and saved me because of that, okay, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. There would be a limit of what God could put me through. Because I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. See, she could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges to it. On the one hand, it cut away that that uh, slavish fear because God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. Yet she could also see that if Jesus really had done this for her, she was not her own because she was bought with a price. So because Paul has understood the true message of the gospel of sheer grace had so gripped him, he knows that he is not his own. His life is not for him to preserve and to keep for his own doing. And so part natural to his ministry is the giving of himself and not just a performing of a duty, not just a saying of words and transmitting of information. It's a giving of himself. And so I think the reason why we don't do it more is because we must be entertaining the notion somewhere that our lives are still our own. It is still ours. But for the authentic gospel messenger, gripped by the sure grace of the gospel message, we must know that we are no longer our own. And so that's why Paul, like a nursing mother, cares and shares his life with them and he reminds them of that. And he moves on to uh, his third you know, metaphor from the family, how like a model, uh, he models to them like a godly father. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, I mean, some commentaries are right, they try to Say, okay, holy means this, okay, righteous means this, and blameless means this. Okay, I mean, in one sense, there's some truth to it, but, but we must recognize that, that Paul is trying to get a point across, and that there's no real sense trying to make too much of a distinction between these three words. Paul is just piling up the words. You know, you are witnesses. Right? Don't, don't listen to what these jealous Jews have to say about, about us. You know that we were holy, we were righteous, we were blameless. He's just piling up the words. He's saying, yes, before God, we acted rightly. We were right before God. And because we were right before God, horizontally, when we worked with you, when we were with you, 
it was right as well. We were blameless. Now, Paul doesn't mean that you know, he was uh, you know, this close to sinless perfection. You know, Paul does not mean that okay, you know, authentic gospel ministry, you know, the, the, the gospel ministers are this close, okay, one whisker away from being perfect. No, he does not mean that. Because to be blameless doesn't mean to not do anything wrong. But to be blameless uh, encompasses the idea of when I realize I've done wrong, my response is confession and repentance. It's not, not ever doing anything wrong, but being teachable and, oh, okay, okay, I've transgressed. Okay, repent, confess, ask for forgiveness. Okay, that's what he means. And then he moves on to say in verse 11, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Right? Say, like a father, I challenged you, I urged you, I exhorted you to live lives worthy of God. So you see what has happened here? Paul says implicitly that he has modeled, he has modeled what that worthy of God life looks like. And he, upon that model, encourages them to also imitate uh, the model he has displayed before them. Now, F.F. Bruce has said, because Paul realizes that only if they have conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel which they proclaim, could they reasonably expect their converts to live in a manner worthy of the gospel which they received? See, Paul knows that. And so he has modeled and therefore he has exalted them to live lives worthy of God just as he has done. Now, I mean, isn't this a most compelling vision of Christian ministry? I mean, it is, it, is, it is at once compelling, but at the same time humbling. Because, I mean, I think I should have said this earlier, but I mean, I, I don't live up to this. I mean, none of us do. And so that's why it, this is an ideal that we must be constantly praying and striving towards. We must not accept anything less. So it is, at one hand, a compelling but also a humbling vision of true gospel ministry. Because you see, only the authentic message of God, okay, and uh, this is a phrase that he uses throughout this passage, the gospel of God, gospel of God. See, only that authentic gospel of God, because it is authentic gospel of God, it will then come with the true power of God. It is only that message that comes with that power that can transform sinners into anything close to what Paul is describing here. Messengers that is like that. And so, for those of us who are involved in Christian ministry, when you do fail, when I fail, it is not ultimately about gritting our teeth and trying harder. But it is ultimately about running back to that message that we have been entrusted with. 
not so much to just tell it faithfully, but to faithfully apply to ourselves because we need to hear, we need to be gripped daily and more deeply with what the gospel is. Because only that gospel can make us authentic gospel ministers. Now I want to tell you that um, Paul is saying, okay, he's coming here saying that you can trust the message because I am an authentic messenger. Now there's one piece of caution I want to uh, say at this point. There are some people who come to church and because maybe they come at this time where they witness a failing of a leader, of a Christian leader. And so they, hey, this Christian leader failed. So how can I now trust this message? Right? And then, as you know, some people, they, they just leave because of that. But I want to say to you, don't just look at the leaders that are around you. Because ultimately, you can look at the leader that is before you in this passage, that Paul, as the authentic messenger of the gospel, he is saying here that his motivation was to please God, his, his manner was like a, a self-giving nursing mother, he, he was like a father who modeled that godly life, he didn't just speak it, he modeled it as well. And so you don't have to rest your ultimate confidence in the leaders around you, because we might fail you. Because ultimately, you can rest it on the passage before you. That this messenger, Paul, he was authentic. And you can trust his message, which is contained in this book. Now, as a, a way of concluding, while I said that what you should expect uh, from Christian uh, ministers and I, I, I made it broad because it is broad. Christian ministry, all Christians in one way or another, we are involved in Christian ministry. But there is also a sense in which the people that you have specially appointed to this task, uh, namely Andrew and myself, what should a sane, okay, what should a sane, a biblically minded, a healthy congregation? What should a sane, biblically-minded, sound and healthy congregation, what should they expect? What should you expect from the people that you appoint as your pastors? Well, you should expect something like this. Now, it's, uh, it's on the slides, and it's something that I've adapted from Eugene Peterson's book. And this is what a sane biblically-minded, healthy church. Okay, it'll be up here on the, on, the, on the screen. What you should say to the people that you appoint as your pastors. So the way I've done it is uh, like responsive reading. You read the yellow, I'll read the white. So that, I mean, I think it's too long for you to read on your own and if, I, if I only I read, then okay, it's a bit too long. So we just we, we read it responsively. But, but this is what you should be saying this is what you should be expecting, and this is a way it can come out. Okay? And I think it summarizes most of the things, the points in this passage. Um, you know, in one way, when I came back from college, you know, 
I think it was Mark, Mark was here, then he just introduced me, okay, you know, why is back, and why is the new associate minister, that was it, right? Um, but if you were to do it properly, there should be something like this, this is what you should say of me, this is what you should continue to say of Andrew and me, and anyone else you appoint as your pastors. So, you are yellow, I'm white. Please begin. We believe that the invisible is more important than the visible at any one single moment and in any single event that we choose to examine. We believe the most significant thing that happens or can happen is that we are no longer dismembered but are grafted into the resurrection body of Christ. We know we are launched on a difficult and dangerous act of faith. And there are strong influences intent on diluting or destroying it. We want you to give us help. This isn't the only task in the life of faith, but it is your task. We will find someone else to do the other important and essential tasks. This is yours, word and sacrament. We know you are launched on the same difficult belief venture in the same dangerous world as we are. We know your emotions are as fickle as ours and your mind is as tricky as ours. We know there will be days and months, maybe even years, when we won't feel like believing anything and won't want to hear it from you. There may be times when we come to you as a committee or delegation and demand that you tell us something else than what we are telling you now. There are many other things to be done in this fallen world. And we are going to be doing at least some of them. But if we don't know the foundational realities with which we are dealing, 
God, kingdom, gospel, we are going to end up living futile fantasy lives. God help me to do that. Amen.